Welcome to the Revenue Blueprint. This is not another sales podcast on tips and tactics. Instead, we focus on unfiltered stories from founders and early stage sales leaders on what it takes to build a successful revenue team. If you get just a little bit of value from this, we ask that you pay it forward by liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. All right, let's get into the episode. the next episode of Revenue Blueprint. Today, we are joined by Megan Bowen. She is the COO at Refine Labs, where she was employee number six. Yeah. And she's also done, she did about 100% of the selling or was involved in about every sale they went through for the first few years or first couple years of the business. Before that, Meg was the COO and VP of sales at Managed by Q, venture-backed company that was acquired by WeWork. She also was a director at Grubhub, and she was an early sales hire and account management leader at Zocktop. So very excited to have you on today, Matt. Glad to be here, Jason. What's up, Seth? Like I said before we started, I'm going to steal so much wisdom. So, <laughs> Yes, it is. There's something about people that don't necessarily have very linear career paths that have the best worldview. And I'm really excited to dive into Meg's worldview today and get some feedback and thoughts and stories from her. Let's do it. Where do we start? So let's start with Refine Labs. Let's just give people a little context. So what's the simplest explanation of what Refine Labs does? We help our customers get more customers. <laughs> that is very like simple. business model. <laughs> Why hasn't anyone else thought of that? <laughs> so we provide a variety of consulting and marketing execution services to help get our customers messaging and positioning out in the market in front of their target buyer, ultimately to drive high intent buyers to their website and raise their hand to talk to sales and ultimately become a customer. So that's a little bit of an expanded explanation for you, but that's what I like to tell people <laughs> when they ask. So Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit more. So you joined your employee number six. How much revenue was the company doing when you joined? We were at about a million ARR when I joined. It was the summer of 2020. Our founder and CEO, Chris Walker, had bootstrapped the company up until then with just a couple of people and basically leveraging LinkedIn to drive demand for his business. And he was doing all the sales. When I teamed up with him, we really decided that the momentum that he had built with his posting on LinkedIn LinkedIn and some of his early clients was really building at the time. And so him and I were able to really accelerate that growth. And it's been a wild journey. Last year was tough though, right? We had like a great, we rode the COVID boom 2020, 2021. And then into like April, 2022, things were still good. And then probably like May, 2022 is when we got like punched in the face by the economy. And so things have been challenging since then. We've been able to weather the storm. We've had to go through some layoffs and we've had some difficult pivots we've had to make. The sun is coming up over the horizon, so it seems like things are on their way to getting better, but it's a challenging economic climate all around for everyone. So we're definitely still, I think, in stabilization and recovery mode right now, but was a gnarly sort of the ideal hockey stick growth chart from 2020 into 2021. And, and riding that way was pretty, pretty crazy. A bootstrapped and profitable ride in 20 through all this. And how much revenue did you guys do last year? Last year we did just under 20 million in revenue. We had projected if we had seen the prior growth continue, we had thought it was going to be much higher. So we were actually relatively flat over the course of last year based on we had we saw really strong growth in the first half of the year through about May. And that's when we started to see our customers are B2B software companies. And arguably, they were the sector that was hit the hardest last year. So they were slashing budgets and that impact 
impact them working with us. So that's when we started to see some churn in our business and we get, we began to pivot our offerings and our pricings to really meet the market where it was at. So we had intended to do more than that and ultimately sort of maintained the business throughout all of the crazy ups and downs of 2022. Yeah. You couldn't just clip the graph before it leveled yeah. out. I mean, yeah, you can just that. adjust <laughs> you can the time the frame that you show <laughs> for... <laughs> yeah. you, you decide what story you want to tell and you find the data that 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 supports your story, right? So we can all play that game. <laughs> yeah, right. Everyone that says the numbers don't lie is a liar because you just make them tell the story you want. Can you... I think there's this is a fascinating story. Can you tell us the story about how you joined Refine Labs? Because you were coming from this rich venture back SaaS background and you had a really big network, but you made this choice for very specific reasons. So I'm curious to hear about that story. Yeah, definitely. And like the leadership, you were leading teams. And then the, Jason said you... You were involved in every sale, going back to an IC role, right, in effect. Like, how do you, is that what you expected? Why did you make that decision? I mean, it's nice to say, it's like, oh, it worked out now. But like during that path, like, yeah, I'm excited to learn about that. Yeah, definitely. There's a couple, there's a couple points here that I want to hit. So number one is I actually have a, one of my career mantras is don't be afraid to take a step back, to take two big steps forward. So actually when I was an account manager at this company, before ZocDoc, I ended up taking massive pay cut to go to ZocDoc, but I saw the potential and my opportunity to grow. And so I've done this throughout my career where I find an opportunity or a company that I see real potential in and objectively potentially take on a role that is lower than my experience or my comp up until that point. Whenever I've taken that risk, it's it's paid off. We'll talk about ZocDoc a little bit later, so I'll save that story, but that's one of my one of my mantras yeah. that I like to so, share. So listening. How do you, so you, but you deliberately did that early on because I got lucky. I was an account executive at a terrible company and then I ended up being an SDR at a world-class company and that just sent me on my way. And it was because I wanted to move from the forest to the big city and I had to make some, I, was, I don't think I was as conscious as you were about this, but it, I did see how it accelerated my career. Were you conscious about those decisions earlier? And I know we're gonna get some examples later, but like that seems very wise and not many people are doing that. They're always looking for like the leap ahead versus the step back to accelerate. Like, how do you think about it? And where did that wisdom come from? Yeah, I think I had been at the same company for about six years in the same position as an account manager and the company just wasn't growing. Our particular division was doing well that me and my teammate were working on. But what I realized was the vehicle that you get into is more important than the role that you start with. Right. Because if the yeah. vehicle is going in a certain like the company that I left for ZocDoc, they didn't want me to go. But I had basically there was nowhere I had hit the ceiling of growth and there wasn't anything more I was going to learn from that opportunity. And for me, I need to be constantly challenged learning and, and growing. So when I saw the ZocDoc opportunity, I could see the potential of this being a really successful future company. At the time, this was 2012. I was like, oh, my God, booking a doctor's appointment online. This is such a good idea. But seriously, and that was like unheard of at the time. But I was like, of course, everyone's going to do this in the future. Like, Definitely. So I saw the potential and I knew that if you join a successful startup, things change rapidly. And if you prove value, you can be awarded different opportunities. So that's how it did pan out there. So I think that the main, the intentionality behind it was understanding the vehicle that I was getting into and not being overly concerned with the first seat that I was taking. 
And if the first seed is something you did before that you have total confidence you will be successful at it, it accelerates even more. It's not a step back. It's like a step onto like solid footing Definitely. into a great vehicle that has a trajectory that is better than whatever you're stepping out of. And then maybe on that point, how does leadership play a role in choosing a role? Because we talk a lot about that of you have a great boss, usually things are good, terrible boss, sadness. Like how did that play into these decisions? Yeah. So that was something I probably learned later in my career because <laughs> the, the reality is there were good leaders and not so good leaders at ZocDoc during my tenure there. Frankly, like with any company, you really often have a mix. What I will say, and like even going back to bring it back around to Jason, your initial question of how did I join Refine Labs? When I think about ZocDoc and Grubhub and Managed by Q and WeWork and then even platters after that. I had been at all of these venture-backed companies, all of them, again, this is like 2012 to 2020. So that decade was really probably the peak of what I would call like growth at all costs, right? And top line growth, grow, profit doesn't matter. Good old days, two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, unrealistic goals, insane pressure, firing people immediately if these goals that were built in a spreadsheet weren't hit. Seeing the impact, especially like WeWork was like such an extreme example of like poor leadership decisions, like impacting hundreds and thousands of people's jobs and livelihoods, right? And I just got to the point. Then we have the pandemic, and granted, that's out of our control, another swath of layoffs. And I was just like, man, I need to get out of this crazy, like, growth at all costs cycle. I want to build a company that is profitable from day one. I want to show the world and bootstrap a company that you can still be successful and grow, but you don't have to do all these crazy things or, like, put all like the livelihood of lots of people at risk. And so when I left Platters, initially I was going to start by just starting my own consulting gig and sort of see where that panned out. I had gotten active on LinkedIn in 2019, and that's where I had first met Chris Walker, who is the founder and CEO of Refine Labs. Him and I became LinkedIn connections. We liked each other's content. We did a few podcast recordings early on when he started recording content. He was one of the first video like creators on LinkedIn, really leveraging that in early 2019. He ended up coming down to New York before the pandemic and we did this like really high production video interview, which was super fun. And so him and I had just stayed connected. We enjoyed creating content together. And then when I was basically, I left my I left platters and was about to start my own thing and he had just happened to reach out to like hey let's reconnect it's been a while since we spoke and on that call he was asking me do you know anyone like I'm looking for like a COO customer success person I was like man I don't know. Like, I'll let you know if I think of someone. And he's like, well, how's it going at Platters? What are you up to? And I'm like, oh, I just quit. I'm going to start my own consulting company. I've Here's some of the things I'm thinking of. And he was like, wait, what? You quit? You don't have a job? And I'm like, well, I'm going to start my own thing. And he was like, wait, I was talking about you. Like, come work with me. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. The old, I'm asking for a referral, but I really want yeah. it to be new. And I like, I did not understand it right over my <laughs> head. I'm like, I'll let you know. Let me look through my network. <laughs> and it, we actually, I was, well, I was like, maybe. I'm like, I'm going to start my own thing. And he's like, no, come start this with me. And we went through many conversations because I was basically like, I... I need to work with very, like, I need to work with people who are on my same level, that have my same values. Like, I'm not interested in, like, doing the CEO's dirty work, which is a position I've often been in. 
and it's like here's all my baggage and like here's like what I can't do anymore <laughs> and here's what I'm excited about but what we realized was we both had that same goal bootstrap a profitable business show people that you can build a business in a different way value your team value your customers but still actually have a successful business and strong unit economics and so and then in my mind I said you know what like it's interesting how the universe works. And so let me give this a shot, right? If this doesn't work out, I have the experience of building up an agency or a consultancy, which will only help me one day, should I go back to that dream. And it proved out that we were a great team. We like solidified a formal business partnership and we've been building the company ever since. What has, what parts of the job or this journey have gone better than expected? So I would say the first like 18 months was just insane with the going from basically like almost one to 20 million in about 18 months. And I the the irony looking back on it was we got caught up in almost like the same growth at all costs, but we had it was all inbound demand coming in. So we don't do any outbound sales. All of our customers come to us and then obviously we need to convert that demand, but we're not doing like outbound outreach or anything like that. So it was why it was easy in the beginning. Inbounds would come in, Chris or I would take the call, and we were both selling to close business. And we just, our demand exceeded our supply. So we kept bumping up our prices. But when I joined, we were charging like eight to 12K a month. And by the end of this, we were charging between like 35 and 45K per month. And we uh, we built a creative team that didn't exist. So we were just responding to the market's demands of us based upon how we were able to help our customers. And it was an insane amount of growth. I think in one quarter, we hired like 40 people, which was insane because we're a consulting business. Like we need people to deliver the work for our customers, right? So that's like a very delicate balance, especially when you're bootstrapped because you don't have a ton of money to invest in resources in advance. So it's this constant tension and pressure. Yeah. How did you manage the quality assurance of hiring 40 people when that's the growth at all costs? We'll just keep hiring people because we have plenty of capital, knowing that the efficiency of those folks in a bootstrap business is so much more important than, well, it should be important in every business, but even more when you're more of a cash flow bootstrap business. How did you keep the quality assurance like? tight or did you or how did that go it was it was okay like i think this was definitely one of my learnings was you can grow too fast and managing your growth is super important right and so there were things like we didn't implement the rigor of systems and process that really we should have at the time right it's it like when you have 25 or 30 customers, I pretty much would know everything about 25 or 30 customers. But when that jumps to 60, it's just not possible anymore, right? And then you're really trusting people that are, you're trusting that people are doing what you think that they should be doing. You don't have you the visibility that you need, right? You're so we definitely struggled with that. And in hindsight, I think e like even if you can grow that fast, maybe you shouldn't, right? And and what was different in this regard is the demand was coming to us. So I think the way I thought about it anyway was, well, we're not forcing this growth, right? Or we're not bringing on bad fit customers. Like we're just responding to the demand coming in. So in, in your mind, in the moment, it feels crazy to turn that business away, right? 
or to say no. But in hindsight, and what I've really taken away is you can grow too fast and you need to manage high growth. It needs to be it needs to be managed very carefully. <laughs> could you have like risen? I know you were raising your prices, but could mm-hmm. you have raised them further to stifle the growth? If- so we that was the that was essentially the strategy, right? Every time okay. demand exceeded supply, we just kept bumping up our prices more and more. And frankly, we were like not hitting a ceiling until the economy tanked in like May 2022. So that's when so we started. Yeah. So we basically just kept raising prices pretty much every two to three months. But then the market essentially corrected itself, right? So then we started to see demand decrease, supply increase, customers churn, but we had started to build out an infrastructure that supported a specific price point that we weren't able to command anymore, right? And ultimately led to some layoffs last year as a result. What would you have done differently now that you, if you get this chance to do it again, I'm not saying you have any regrets, but what would you do differently in presenting the same scenario? I would not grow as fast. So like, I think that I, we, and even there was at one point, we even had like a wait list, like we'd sign clients and we would tell them we can't even kick off with you for two months because I need to hire your, I need literally need to hire your team. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just crazy. And so like in hindsight, I would have just like, I would have taken a much more steady approach to growth and I probably would have. I would have continued to raise prices. I probably would have been really selective of only taking like the best possible fit customers and being much more rigorous in qualification, right? And even though there were lots of others that would have worked with us, that would have been the business that I would have turned away. I would have 100 percent taken on on that topic. So the ramifications of that would have been a lower churn rate when things inevitably slowed. Because it's a better customer. Maybe the macroeconomic conditions of last year, I think we would have seen, I think we would have seen the same hit to churn. Like the whole ecosystem basically was in a position to cut costs, right? And so, so, yeah. So then why would you have selected customers better? Like what's the benefit to you of that? Basically, like I would have restricted growth. And so I would have only taken the best fit customers Honestly, primarily for uh, retention, obviously, as a goal, but I think the outcome of retention would have been somewhat similar. Okay. I think team, like our internal people and team experience, like working with a challenging customer is not that fun, right? <laughs> okay, so ha- happiness. <laughs> yeah, and basically what I'm saying is I, if I could do it, if I could have done it over again, I wouldn't have accepted all of the growth. I would have had to say no to some, so I would just take the best customers, right? And sort of say no to the rest and like more methodically grow the business. It would mean that we would have been able to slow down hiring. It would have been that we would have had the time to implement the appropriate internal systems and infrastructure to have a better handle of quality control and just visibility across the customer base. Like we skipped some steps because the growth engine was so strong. So... A lot of the folks listening are venture-backed or aspiring to raise capital to grow very fast. You've worked at both types of companies, and I keep saying how much wisdom you're imparting in us, so you've gained this wisdom. I've been in a board meeting where I was a VP of sales, and I was a little bit more conservative at the time because of my experiences, and I said, what if we can't grow as fast as 
we think we can grow with hiring all these people. And they said, either you're going to try to grow that fast or we're going to find someone who will grow that yep. fast. So it really made it simple to me. I was like, well, I guess we're going to grow at all costs because you're going to fire me if I don't try. <laughs> and if I don't, if I fail anyway, you're going to fire me. So let's go for it. Yep. So like, that's the rubric or the lens that investors and many founders are then looking through as they talk to their sales leaders. And how would you reconcile the wisdom gained through this experience for sales leaders at early stage startups that is a growth, like grow or die trying? How do you reconcile that in your mind? Do you have any like kind of wisdom or thoughts to impart on folks that are going through that or going to go through that? Yeah. And I like, I succumb to that pressure at prior companies too, right? Like I signed up for goals that I knew we wouldn't hit. I put pressure on my teams to maybe do things to hit short-term targets at the expense of long-term growth. So like I've played that game before too, right? I've been in that exact position. I have a ton of empathy for people, for leaders that are in that position because it's incredibly challenging. What I have learned is people that have that mindset, they do not change their minds. And so it's a losing battle to try to convince a growth at all costs mindset that they should be more concerned about sustainable growth and healthy unit economics and profitability. <laughs> so the what you need to understand is what type of environment do you want to be in? What type of environment okay. are you going to learn and grow? You actually can learn a lot by being in those environments, but it's incredibly challenging and incredibly risky, right? To your point, like your job could be on the line typically within a 12 to 18 month time frame, depending on if you can hit targets. And your ability to hit those targets could actually like have nothing to do with your talent and everything to do with external circumstances that you cannot control, right? So like the thing that I encourage people to take away is ask the right questions to under ask the right questions to yourself to understand what you want in your career, what type of environment you want to be in, and ask the right questions to a potential employer so you understand what you're getting into, right? It what it is, it's about alignment. People should be looking for environments and roles that are going to give them what they need at that stage of their career, which is going to be different for everybody. There isn't like a right or wrong or a good or bad. I don't hate VC-backed companies. In fact, many of them are our customers. We help them. We love <laughs> them. So it's not, but I had my own negative experiences where I said, I don't want to lead in that way. I don't want to be in an environment where this is what the expectation is. And then I'm put in a position to maybe go against my values or the way I think things should be done. Right. So I've gotten to that point in my career where I learned that. So yeah. I'm going to be putting myself in situations where I can do the work that is inspiring and challenging to me and lead my teams in the way that I believe teams should be led. Right. But it took me 17 years to get to that point and many different tours of duty at many different <laughs> companies. Does it like, like, like risk management and where you are in your career? Because like from my experience going through what I had just mentioned, the accelerant to my career during that growth at all costs was incredible. Mm -hmm. The correction makes me tear up when I talk about it. Like it is a swift when it doesn't work. It is a painful correction. So it's like career accelerant, no regrets. <laughs> a little bit of like mental health unwinding from it of just like, wow, firing all those people and like going through that correction rapidly. So that's maybe what people need to understand is like, yes, it's awesome. But can you handle that mentally, financially when a potential correction kind of inevitably comes and it's and it usually falls on the head of the commercial leader 
responsible for those numbers that are in the spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. And like, this is my managed by Q journey. And like, is it even enjoyable? I don't know. Like, not really. Like, so the man in my managed by, adrenaline by field. <laughs> yeah, my managed by Q doing. journey, I started as the senior director of account management. And then within 18 months, I was promoted to COO. And yeah. <laughs> I, so arguably on paper, what a trajectory. Wow. You learned so much. Wow. You like jumped multiple levels in under a two-year period to accelerate yeah. your career. And I tell the story of the day that the CEO sat me down and said, hey, I'm going to give you this promotion, like well-deserved. You really earned this. Like I literally felt numb. I felt nothing. I had wanted to be a COO for like 15 years of my life. I finally get the promotion and I'm just like, I'm exhausted. Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, am I living? Like, am I working the way that I feel we should be working? So I get this promotion. Then we have the WeWork acquisition. What year was the acquisition? 2019. It was April 2019 was the close of the acquisition. And then September 2019 was the failed IPO and like was essentially like the collapse of WeWork. And so I basically like pour, give my heart and soul to this company I get this like career achievement that like really doesn't actually mean anything to me. We then get this acquisition, which was very exciting. I mean, but sorry, I, and I want to I want to yeah. hear about the acquisition. But like, why were you numb? Because again, like we talked about this before the before we started, is like unpacking these things that from the outside it's like I want to be you when I grow up, and you're like I don't want to be me right now. Like what? How? Do, why was that numb? Like what happened? Like, yeah. I thought that when I reached this career milestone that I would feel a sense of accomplishment, satisfaction, like pride, that I would have proven myself that I'm capable of having a big role and a big title at a successful company that like I, that's that those are the feelings that I was expecting to feel right when I hit that milestone but to get to that milestone I had to essentially run myself into the ground like to your point like neglect my mental and physical health do things that were not aligned with my value set because of the high pressure of the environment I don't know be in a situation where in hindsight like I I am proud of a lot of the work that I did. I am proud of a lot of the problems that I solved, a lot of the leaders that I helped to develop during my tenure there. But I'm not proud of how I took care of myself. Like, I'm not proud of some of the decisions that I made because I made them under pressure, right? And in hindsight, I didn't make ones that I was proud of, right? So the journey was not enjoyable. And the journey, like, almost, like, killed me a little bit. And then what happened soon after acquisition, WeWork like fall from grace, then WeWork cuts funding off to Q. Not only do I have to lay off half, like most of the company, I'm part of the layoff. And I'm like no longer wanted over here because they're trying to reset everything. So it's like, what just happened? And like this loyalty and this commitment that I had. I was super bitter for a while. I've let that go. Like I've learned my lessons good, and I'm good, friendly yeah. with lots of people at Q. It's like such a great group of people. So I have no, I harbor no ill will to any of the individuals involved. And like ultimately I'm accountable and responsible for my life and all of my decisions. But at the time it was devastating. And it was like, what did, like, what was this for? And then this achievement that I got God. was gone. Right. right? Wow. 
The, I mean, you, you hit two major words that I think we talk a lot about is like in the journey, right? If you're like this whole thing, I mean, it all comes back to like this whole thing is a journey and you've gained the wisdom that it now sounds like you're like deliberately setting up a journey that you will enjoy versus these milestones that I think we've all got to. Like I, I felt the same way. It's like, oh, and I get to be titled a VP of sales. I've made it. And then I'm just like, what? That was nothing. Now I get to still do the same job that I actually did before I had this title. So like, if I'm not enjoying that journey, I mean, that, that's an interesting one. Yeah, so fascinating to unpack all of those different things. And I think this is, it's part of my human condition, at least, and I think I've seen a lot, is that you have to go through some of these types of struggles to then, when you're presented with the next new thing, to have a lot of conviction in the direction that you want to go, right? So had you not gone through all those other struggles, you wouldn't have been so clear that when you were joining Refined Labs, this is the menu of things that, or the prerequisites that you want to have in that next role. And that you only build that confidence by getting that experience. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm in the Refine Labs chapter right now, but one of the things I ask myself a lot is, why didn't I just start my own thing? And in, in reflecting on that, I did not have a lot of confidence at the time. I think I was really scared to go out on my own and start something. And so what's been interesting is this experience with Refine Labs has actually been an opportunity for me to build up my confidence and my own abilities to set me up for whatever my next chapter is and whenever that is. But there are times when I even ask myself, like, wow, if I had enough courage to just maybe not do the easier thing, which was to join something that was working with someone super smart that I had a lot of respect for that I was like, oh, yeah, like we could be a good team. This could be a fun <laughs> ride. But that's like and then this journey has been much better than my previous chapters, despite its own set of challenges. But that's another thing that I ask myself a lot of, too. So. Well, your honesty and self-awareness is so refreshing and that you've been so wildly successful, yet at the same time, you're still honest about self-confidence and just like, am I making the right decision? And yeah. yeah, gaining those kind of bits of wisdom. Maybe going back to the earliest days at ZocDoc. And well, I, I want to I, I get to the ZocDoc stuff, but just while we're on this topic yeah. real quick, how has your relationship with Chris been tested over the last couple of years? Yeah, so I think we make a really good team. We have very complementary skill sets. So he's he's a brilliant marketer. He's a visionary. He's like he's got like an engineering mind, tons of great product ideas, super smart. And I'm more of the like sort of operational integrator, customer success, people leader. So when you put the both of us together, we really became a strong team because it was like all of the things that you would want in an, an ideal leader. And like between the two of us, we had it. In early days, especially during the growth phase, we were a very strong team. I think like with anything, when hard times hit, it really tests the strength of any type of relationship or partnership, right? And so I think when we had to go through making decisions around pivoting the business or layoffs or other cost reductions or placing different bets on what we think would work or didn't work, this was when we would start to really experience some challenges between us, right? And so I think it's challenging. And like him and I have had a lot of ups and downs. And I think where we've probably had the most tension has been in making really challenging and difficult decisions. And I think 
because of my history, I'm what the baggage that I bring to the table is not wanting to execute on other people's orders, right? I don't want to do your dirty work. But the reality <laughs> was, is we had to make a lot of really tough decisions and then execute them together, right? And so I think that tension of us needing to be aligned on those decisions, in some cases, he made some calls and others, I made them. We both had to deal with the consequences of those. And then I think, frankly, when you're in this type of situation, you're often the only other person that you can really, that really understands what's going on. And I think it's quite easy to take out your frustrations on each other that can really impact and degrade the relationship, right? So I think the biggest challenges we had were around decision-making, like kind of some struggles between us on who should be making what decisions and who should be executing them. Both of us having our I told you so moments with each other. <laughs> and it's hard because when things are good, it's easy to be a team together and like win together. When things are hard, it becomes really challenging to lose together effectively. And yeah, so founder finger pointing dilemmas. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the what I found is we have been able to navigate a lot of it through open communication and honesty and being able to forgive and forget, if you will. But, man, it's hard. It's really hard. It, it, even when you it is up as good as possible. Yeah. Right. When even when you when the match makes so much sense like that. And I think one of my lessons from over these past few years has been it's almost you need to treat things inverse. It's when things are really tough that's when you need to show as much support as possible for the other person or the team. Yeah. And when things are going really great, that's the reminder to push them harder and make sure that you're holding them accountable because that's the easiest time for things to slip. And one thing I learned, I don't know if you guys have read this book called The Courage to Be Disliked. I'm obsessed with it. Check it out. It's like this Japanese philosophy. It's in the show notes. Yeah. Um, one of the key learnings from this book that applied to my partnership with Chris that I think would be applicable to other people in business partnerships is this concept of the separation of tasks. And so everyone has their own tasks that they should be doing that they're responsible for. And the one of the assertions of this book are all of your problems are interpersonal relationship problems. And all interpersonal relationship problems are typically a result of individuals taking on the tasks of others instead of focusing on the tasks of that of themselves. And in like a business- worrying about somebody else's it's like that's not your job at all. Why are you why are we why are you worried about what they're doing? That's not your responsibility. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Or in a business partnership, if you have established roles and responsibilities, right? Okay. These are the things you're responsible for. These are the things you're responsible for. But then I either of you are trying to get into each other's lane in a business partnership. This is where the majority of conflict is generated. So this was a really interesting reflection and takeaway because I could look back to some of the di disagreements or challenges that we had and you could actually map it back down to the root cause being one of us was doing this to the other person, right? And so it's really oh, wow, interesting yeah. to reflect on that like and Jason like we want to support one another or this and that and we do with encouragement and assistance but not by actually doing the thing for the person, right? Yeah, right and right. my inclination, I am a helper. So I probably was the most egregious offender of this. 
well, you're the CEO, but I know this has to happen and I know this is hard for you. So I'm going to do this thing for you. Right. And I think I'm helping you, but I'm not. And I'm actually Mm -hmm. creating resentment on your side, which is going to then turn into an issue in our partnership. And so that particular separation of task theory, especially as it relates to like colleague or business partner relationships is fascinating to me. And you, I think you can map back most disagreements to someone trying to do the other person's task when they should not. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's an awesome perspective for us to get. I took an, I time stamped that one. Megan's going to be counseling, coaching us, Jason, when we get into our conflicts. <laughs> yes. yes. Give you a good mediator. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. That's yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Seth, let me, let me get it back to you. I know there's a question. You had yeah. I mean, about. you've had a tremendous sales career. We've talked about <laughs> your, and I'm interested to learn about how you've shaped things and sold it refined, but going back to the earliest days at ZocDoc, right? It sounds like you helped build up those functions that you saw potential for. Can you get, Explain what you saw, how you built things on the commercial side, and then yeah. we can start taking through some of your sales experience. And, and again, you keep imparting wisdom. Like, let's give it to some of the, let's impart some sales wisdom for the folks on the sales side. Yeah. And so we're actually going to start in customer service. So my first role at ZocDoc. Doesn't it always yeah. start with customer service? <laughs> my first role at ZocDoc was like a customer support agent. I sat on a stability ball. I had a headset. I responded to emails and picked up phone calls all day long. At the time, ZocDoc had a product and technology team, a customer support team, and a sales team. And that was it. So they, people were selling, the other team was building the product, and then everything else got funneled into customer service, customer support. They hired me and I all noticed- the problem, All the problems. All the problems, saying. yeah. And they just okay, kept right, hiring more customer support people. I did that for nine months, the first nine months working there. And what I- At any point of that, were you like, Maybe this this trajectory, this vehicle that I've gotten on isn't going fast enough for me? Or were you c- content? No, were you okay? I was good. I like always play the long game. So like I have, I'm very patient in that regard. I noticed about three months in, I was like, oh, wow. I can probably distill down our call and email volume to five five issues. <laughs> and we could solve these five issues with an actual post-sale an onboarding process so that all of these reasons that doctors and patients call in don't even have to exist in the first place. At the time, the company just kept hiring more customer support people to handle the increased volume as they increase the number of doctors on the site. So about six months in, I basically put together a summary of, hey, this is what people are calling in for. Here are the core problems in the business. They can be solved if we build a post-sale function. This is what it would look like. This is what we would solve after the sale. And what I believe will happen is we'll see an improvement in churn, an increase in doctor NPS, and a significant drop in email and call volume on the support team. And you don't even have to like, this isn't an extra expense. You have like 80 people on this support team when it could probably be like 25 And let's move some of those people over to this, my new team that I want to create. Proactive versus reactive. I know it's post-sale, but it's like, all right, we know what your problem is going to be if we don't onboard you correctly. Let's do this. Yeah. And by the way, one of the problems was, oh, these salespeople get fired immediately if they don't sell. So they're doing anything to bring a doctor onto the site, including lying, not setting the correct expectations. (laughs) (laughs) 
How could that go wrong? You Lying about that. the product. <laughs> Why would they call customer success after that? It is the right. It's the age-old problem of sales throwing things over the fence to post sales, except in a highly pressurized environment. Oh yeah. Well, so then I they eventually it took about three months of campaigning for this, and they said, you know what? We think you're right. We want you to build this team. Awesome. And I did it. This was the opportunity I was waiting for. We're going to move you into the sales org, though. We just have sales <laughs> tech and customer service. And you'll work with the sales leaders and figure this out. Right. But it was a ton of tension because I was basically like, I know half the doctors that you guys are bringing onto this site don't want to be here. They haven't been they've been misled in the sales process. Right. I want to implement a rigorous qualification process. Shut up. I got numbers to hit. Yep. I got numbers to hit or I get fired. Like blah, 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 blah. And then what I, I was trying to explain to the executive <laughs> team was your new business targets don't need to be so high if you can retain customers. <laughs> <laughs> the reason your targets are so high is because you can't retain anyone. So like, why don't we focus on fixing retention? We can drop targets. We can still hit your revenue plan. So it's working through like that with them and unfortunately like i had a i had sorry sorry to interrupt i gotta ask like, this is so common and you came in as a more junior person you didn't come in as the coo and you're understanding this and i get it because you're in touch with reality but, but many organizations miss this what sounds so obvious like why was that missing at ZocDoc? Like, was it just a wisdom thing or the lack of experience? Like so many companies miss this. I mean, this is why Jason and I do a lot of consulting and helping companies see these things. But like, where was that missing and where maybe with other companies that you've seen? Like, why is that just something that's so obvious? I think they fell into missing. Yeah, I think they fell into the similar growth at all cost trap because they were like, this is an right. innovative idea. People are into it. People, you know, are, we have a lot of patients using the site. There are reasons that doctors want to come on the site and they did scale very quickly. So they just skipped these steps of if we're scaling, we have to build additional processes and teams and systems. And so I think it really fell into that. And then it was just very myopic on new acquisition over the cost of anything else. Nothing else mattered yeah. except hitting the new sales targets. And then once me and other people at the company were showing from a financial perspective that there were multiple ways to achieve our financial targets beyond hitting the net new number. And churn was bad. Churn was really bad. Probably the worst that I've ever seen at any company. And it was like, we just need to sell the right ones and keep the right ones. This yeah. sort of churn and burn is not going to be sustainable. You made that point earlier about when you're growing really fast to continue to build out systems that ensure kind of sustainability and reliability versus getting myopic on the thing that when they first started, yes, top line revenue, let's get some business and like see what's going and then just sticking to the thing versus evolving to a more holistic, healthy business growth approach. Yep. Interesting. The... And obviously that like paid huge dividends, right? At ZocDoc. <laughs> worked out. The team, yeah, the team that I built still exists today. I moved on because I got recruited to go to Grubhub and then I made some waves at the company, right? I, I would escalate inappropriate sales issues. My sales leaders at the time were very upset with me when I would, sh I would show them to the CEO and the COO. I was basically told to like. It was a dog dog. Oh, yeah. Like there was some shady yeah. stuff going on. And so I was like, this is against my values. Like, I'm not cool with this. I 
like told I told people what was going on. I was like, this is what's happening. And like, I don't think any of you guys want this happening. Maybe you're pretending that it do- it's not happening or showing a blind eye, but I'm like, where did that? I mean, I, I know it's your values, but it also is bravery. Most people don't do that. It's like easier not to do that. It sounds like it's like, it would have been easier yeah. not to do that. It's like, true. What about that? It's like, obviously it's helped you in your journey and like staying true to yourself. But for other people that are listening that know that's happening, like, where did you get that bravery from? I mean, it's the right thing to do, but it's not the easy thing to do. I think I had some moments. I had some moments at ZocDoc where I did not speak up when I knew that I should have. And I felt immense personal disappointment in myself. And it was like, okay. this. wow, this isn't worth it. Like, I need to feel good about what I do. My speaking up actually had a lot of negative consequences on my professional situation at the company. I also was getting severely underpaid relative to my male colleagues. I brought it up. I was told to shut up, basically. I brought up these shady practices. My boss at the time took me into a room and said, if I ever did that again, he's firing me. I got a call later that day from a recruiter at Grubhub, and I said, "Sounds like a healthy situation." I gotta go. Time to go. (laughs) The irony is, those leaders didn't last that much longer after I left, and Zocdoc has tried to bring me back a few times, but I've politely declined. You learned (laughs) (laughs) But integrity wins out in the long run because, like you said, it's a long game, and if you're going to cut corners, you're going to get caught eventually somehow. So, yeah. They just, I want to be mindful of time. Meg, you have a hard stop at two. I don't. I could go a little bit longer if we want to keep this going. Right, I, yeah. Not too much. Let's yeah. not abuse Meg. Yeah, don't want to keep you too far. I, but I think the an interesting thing. Excuse me. We'll edit it We can edit that part. Yeah. But, <laughs> I, I think particularly for the early stage sales community, an interesting thing may be to hear the story of how you guys were closing deals at this time last year versus how you're closing deals now and how your sales process has changed. Yeah. So what's interesting is I always, I always tell people, I'm like, I'm a customer success type of seller that when I go through a sales process and I actually, what I tell people is I, I think salespeople should consider how they could incorporate some of these principles into their own sales process. And so go on. uh, I'm excited. I like this. (laughs) What I do when I start a sales process, my my sales process actually hasn't changed from before until now. And especially because I am ultimately responsible for what happens after I sell a customer. I care a lot about what the customer, like what customers we're bringing in. And the first thing that I'll do on a discovery call is I'm not here to convince you to hire us. What I want to do is have a conversation to understand what you're trying to achieve. I'm going to tell you what we do, and I'm going to give you an honest assessment of whether or not we can help you achieve your goals. And if I think that we can, then I think we should work together and that we should see if that makes sense. And if I don't think that we can help, I'm going to tell you and let you know what you should be doing instead. And it's fascinating when you open a relationship with that it immediately creates a sense of trust and people open up much more in a discovery call, give me all the information I need, answer my questions. 
I've actually had multiple early sales conversations where it just wasn't the right fit where I've told them and then maybe they moved to a different company and they came back and they were like, you know, oh, I'm at this new company and like, I know you're just going to tell me the truth and not what you want me to know, right? If you can, if they can sense that you're going to be truthful about whether it's a fit or not from the beginning. I think it's just such a hard thing. It's easier said than done of because course. your competitors are out there telling them they're a perfect fit for all the right reasons because they have the throw it over the fence. I need to get to my numbers type of mentality. But that's such like a reassuring and a differentiator right now. And I don't know if this is a fit. Like, let's see. And I'll tell you. Yeah. Is there anything like the nuance of what you're doing to build that trust? I am just a direct and honest communicator. I don't play games. Even in negotiations, I'm like, this is the best price. I can't go lower. Like I all like if I'm able to discount, I've already applied the discount. Here's the discount that I applied. And I'm not saying that this is the way everyone should sell, but this works for me. And I think that the to your point on easier said than done, I agree. What I would say to that is all the good things in life are easier said than done. Like all the good <laughs> things are actually supposed to be hard. <laughs> but it's really about being able to, I think I I think I do a really strong discovery. I ask a lot of good questions to really understand what is going on because it's easy to ask enough questions to get the answers that you want to feel like you've qualified a prospect without <laughs> being honest with yourself that you're really digging into the real situation. Like one of the things I do are like, okay, what are your goals? Okay, you want to get 5 million in new business this year. How much did you do in new business last year? Oh, 200,000. Do you really think that you're going to hit that? I'm not <laughs> like, I, I'm not a magician. I'm not going to be able to make that jump for you. <laughs> if right. that's what you need to do, you should look elsewhere. And spoiler alert, no one can help you do that. But I think it's just asking really good discovery questions, being really honest, being really clear on who your ICP is and what makes for a good partnership <laughs> and being able to communicate that effectively in the sales process for mutual fit. It just feels like I it's think refreshing versus the traditional kind of selling at all costs to stand out. So I also think it's in be interested to hear your thoughts, but it's a bit of a macro trend or a sales trend. We're all talking about what's the future look like for, but it's more of a consultative role of you have options. Let's see if this is a good fit for you versus here, let me show you the buttons in my demo, or let me discover you just dis discovery just enough to identify some pain. And then let me try to fill that pain with my product. Seems like a deeper, getting deeper is a an honest. It may be the future and is certainly going to be a differentiator if they're talking to multiple reps. Yeah, and it goes back to the vehicle, right? Like in 2021, you could get into any vehicle, and every vehicle was going fast and smooth, right? But <laughs> this year, it's like if your products are nice to have, your company might be dead in 18 months, right? So it's also like if you're going to be a seller. You really need to be critical about which companies you're joining. And is this product a need to have or a nice to have? Do you feel passionate about this product? Like the reason, like the reason I feel confident selling in this climate is I'm telling my prospective customers, my job is to help you get more customers. And I know we all need more customers like to survive, right? So like I know that we're offering a need to have service, but not everybody needs us right now. So what I need to figure out is if you need us right now, and we're going to have a conversation to uncover that and answer that question.
it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is that you, you can uncover a need for most people, but if it's not a priority, as in they need to solve it right now, then just move on to the next prospect because it's not worth trying to sell into them right now. Yep. The other thing that you mentioned where that I think is really important is in the way that you sell, I think you are setting yourself up for much more successful negotiation because when you are anti-selling someone early on or being that honest and build that trust with them, then when you come to the negotiation table, you, they already assume that you're trustworthy and that when you say this is my final price, that it truly is because you've exemplified that level of trust the entire way throughout the process. Yeah. I, the other thing that I'll say is speak in plain English. Like people like to use so much jargon. And frankly, even if you go to our website, you'll see some jargon here and there. But when I get on a sales call, I'm like, okay, like this is what we're actually going to do for you. We're going to run some paid advertising on LinkedIn. This is what that's going to look like. This is what we need from you. These are the key activities that we're going to take. This is the outcome to expect. Like it's also just like, just explain very clearly and directly, this is the process. This is what we're going to do. This is what you can expect as a result of this. You have to do X, Y, and Z if this is going to work. And so I think like sometimes people get a little too caught up in their pitch or their their solution to the pain points. And often as a CS person, when I like inherit a customer and they have a perception of what to expect versus the reality, I'm like, whoa, what is the disconnect, right? So it's also just like, just speak plainly it's like a kool-aid drinking exercise <laughs> yeah. of when you start using all the buzzwords internally you talk to people outside they're like i have no idea what you're talking about. yeah and it's just like people just want to know <laughs> what they're buying and what they're going to get from their purchase right yeah <laughs> it's also imparted this wisdom in other sellers that you've hired all right you talk about how you're high integrity and quite this is your style coming from like a cs perspective of reality mm -hmm. how have you screened other folks to make sure that anybody you're hiring either brings that style or at least that high integrity qualities. Yeah. Because they are so people yeah. are really good at kind of not doing all that all the time. We have one director of sellers, seller, director of sales. His name is Carl Ferreira. He was a top AE at HubSpot. He's also known, I think his like tagline is how you sell is why you win. And so he's very philosophically aligned to this approach. We have him teamed up with a demand marketer who's a subject matter expert in what we do. So we have the sales skills and the subject matter expertise. They make an amazing team. They do the majority of all of our sales right now and have been able to hit targets. And so Chris and I were very specific about the type of seller. We also do not have any variable comp. We pay our sellers a very high base salary and there's no variable comp so that there's no pressure to hit a particular target to get get a commission, for example. And we believe that setup has ensured that we do not bring on bad fit customers. So those that was the approach that we took when we brought in and sort of established this the first selling team outside of me and Chris. There's... You're very deliberate in who you hired that could actually do that. Yes. And we set yeah. goals and incentives appropriately so that they didn't feel pressured to do anything differently. You're very aligned with the business yes. and the business isn't growth at all costs. Are you setting those goals annually, quarterly? What's the frequency there? Yeah, we see you set annual goals, but you reforecast quarterly, especially in the yeah. volatility I mean, over the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. 
All right. Last question. I think this is the way that we're going to start ending each of these conversations moving forward. So what is one lesson or piece of advice that you think about almost every day? So I'm going to plug this book that I'm obsessed with called The Courage to Be (laughs) Disliked, that the most important thing is that you live a life that is in alignment with what you want to do and your values. And all you need is the courage to live the life that you want. And if you're doing it right, there's probably quite a few people that dislike you. And find peace with that. I'm a recovering people pleaser. So that, <laughs> as Seth has said, <laughs> easier said than done. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. The tri- that's a great lesson for salespeople who set out to people please almost as a profession, which is. I had a customer not- call where I conveyed some difficult information about their business, along with a strategic recommendation of what they need to do going forward. Literally on this call, he was like, this was a difficult call and it was hard for me to hear what you said. And I'm like, and I was frustrated with you and mad at you, but you told me what I needed to hear. Like, thank you. I'm still a little frustrated and mad. And like, it was a heated conversation, (laughs) but But, like, it's just very interesting. Like you, it's the concept of like speaking truth to power. Right. And maybe like why I was quote unquote brave enough to do that at ZocDoc. It's like, you got to do what you believe is right. Yeah. I'm going to read the book. Read this book. It's it it, like I've read it three times since the new year. It has like completely changed my mindset. And I am I like read passages from this book every day to like remind myself of like the having the courage that I need to live the life that I want. (laughs) That's amazing. We need that book as our sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Meg. This was awesome. I think. And there's so many things we didn't even get to. We might have to bring you back for part two. I would two love at to do point. part two. This was fun. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate yeah, of course. it. I, I expected sales wisdom and I got life wisdom. So I'd say that's pretty, pretty awesome. Thank you so there much. There you go, man. right? Under promise and over deliver. <laughs> Let it all. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy the Kill journey. <laughs> all right.